Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer, Group CEO here at 11FS. In today's episode, we're going to be asking, how do we get to the holy grail of cross-border payments? Moving money across the world is one of the biggest spaces in financial services and just keeps getting bigger. With the Bank of England predicting the value of cross-border payments to increase from almost $150 trillion in 2017 to over $250 trillion by 2027, that's a big number. In fact, it is such a big number. Enhancing cross-border payments was set as a priority in 2020 by the G20. Big topic here today, I have to say. Uh, but for all of that money moving around the world, there's still lots of issues and technical challenges still to overcome, even for the absolute biggest players in the market. So in this show, we've put together a panel of amazing guests to discuss what progress has been made to date, where does the friction really still remain in cross-border payments? And what are the next steps towards that holy grail of seamless cross-border payments across the world? We'll discuss all of this and much, much more on today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Okay, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a great panel of outstanding guests who can shed a little bit more light on this conversation. First off, it is a welcome return to FinTech Insider. We have Sarah Castelhano, who is the Amir Payments and Commerce Solutions product over at JP Morgan. How's it going, Sarah? Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me back. No worries. You obviously did a really good job the first time you were here to, to get you back, which is, I mean, take that as a uh, as a sale of uh, approval in that sense. But uh, can you remind our audience a little bit about you and your role at JP Morgan? Absolutely. So first, I want to say I'm an absolute avid listener of this podcast, even before my debut back in 2020. It's my go-to listen on my commute, and I'm a big fangirl here. So you know what you're getting yourself into at that stage at that point, don't you, which is good. <laughs> exactly, and I'm excited about the debate. So I'm part of the team at J.P. Morgan Payments. We are the largest payments company in the world. We move over $10 trillion a day, and I'm responsible for the products in EMEA that are moving money. So everything from our merchant acquiring business to our cross-border payments and that in between cash coin, et cetera, I, I'm the product lead here in the region. Very cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, a, a real expert in this field as well. And from one expert to, a, to another, we also have a FinTech Insider debut for uh, Will Artingstall, who is the global co-head of cross-border payments and receivables at Citi. 
Will, great to have you on the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. Uh, much like Sarah, also a bit of an avid listener of your podcasts. I always find the content absolutely fascinating. So humble plug for you there, uh, David, yet again. Um, maybe just as a quick bit of intro, uh, for the, the longest time, I've tended to introduce myself as an interesting version of a banker, uh, not a more traditional version of a banker. I've been with City for around 13 years now, started my life uh, as a civil engineer and, and working in the construction industry. So spent a little bit of time, uh, a little bit more on the engineering side of the world. And I feel kind of quite lucky at this stage to be leading uh, and responsible for our, our global cross-border payments and receivables business. You know, we cover a couple of different products within that world, but really speaking, it's a really interesting time to be in cross-border uh, at City. Our vision at this stage is really to be the preeminent banking partner for institutions that have got cross-border needs. So, you know, this is a really uh, topical sort of uh, part of the business today. Uh, and it's a really significant part of what we do. You know, we're physically present in nearly 100 countries. Uh, you know, we're able to make payments in up to 195 different countries and 135 different currencies. So really, really sizable business for us um, and a really critical component of what we do. Fantastic. Well, uh, two listeners who just so happen to be preeminent experts in the subject matter to, to like it's going to be interesting both of you to find out whether you listen back to yourselves on the show or not I'm, uh, I'm going to be uh, going to be texting you both to find out but uh, maybe if we we start this discussion then to look at really where we are today uh, I mean cross-border payments is a, a very evolving topic and payments much more broadly than that in terms of uh, the 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 world of uh, of everything that makes that up whether it's technology or regulation or anything that's sort of happening in this space but but I, I guess if we sort of stand back and go you know, where are we today? I mean, who is moving money across borders in 2023? And I don't mean, uh, you know, in the back of a car trying to conceal it. It's uh, This is very much the, uh, the the massive rails that we've got shipping around. Who, who are typical customers? Sarah, maybe starting with you. Absolutely. And I would almost change the question to who isn't moving money cross-border in 2023. Companies of all sizes are looking at cross-border payments, whether it is paying suppliers or expanding outside of your home market. Cross-border payments become really the lifeblood of a lot of companies. And it's not just corporates anymore. If we look at the Internet of Things, and sometimes I think about it as one large global marketplace, you can buy anything you want from rare edition Nike trainers. And although we live in a, in the, I'm based in the UK, it's very card-based. Cards aren't accepted everywhere. And sometimes an individual needs to actually make a, a payment cross-border to buy, buy their goods where cards aren't accepted. And then the last one, which I would say is the business case of every single fintech out there, is remittance. If you go and you listen to a pitch, it's this massive remittance market everybody's trying to go after. And that's really to support the expat or migrant community where sending money back home is really, really important to them. So I think, and the way we look at it at JP Morgan is really payments do more than you think, and every payment has a story. So I'd say almost everybody's moving money across borders. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I completely agree with you on the pitch side. I mean, it's uh, payments at the heart of everything, and the rest of it is context, isn't it? But uh, Will, how do you uh, how do you think about this? I mean, who is a who is a customer in this context? And and I, I guess we we talked a little bit there about. I mean, borders are 
sort of increasingly becoming reasonably irrelevant when global marketplaces open up? Yeah, it's a great question, um, David. And, I, you know, just listening to Sarah's answer, uh, you know, when I looked at and heard the question, I was kind of thinking the exact same thing. Well, like everyone, <laughs> you know, absolutely everyone is moving money cross-border today. I think when, when I look at this from a city perspective, we're probably a little bit skewed when we think about the types of groups uh, within our networks that are moving money. And primarily that's just down to how sizable our institutional clients group business is. So we're, we're a little bit sort of skewed towards serving and supporting large scale corporates uh, and large scale organizations across you know, banks, governments and, 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 and corporate organizations that are trying to move money around. So what we tend to see uh, is is essentially a couple of different methods, I guess, for or, or a couple of different groups moving money. First is we have corporates that are just trying to make generalized payments. They're paying for vendors. They're you know remitting money offshore. They're uh, remediating profits. All that type of thing uh, in terms of their standard corporate flow. But I think the second um, the second type of 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 space that's starting to emerge, which is kind of interesting is we're increasingly starting to use payments as uh, seeing payments being used as an offering or a service, right? So we're actually seeing payments being utilized by an organization to provide their own products or to provide their own service sets, which I think is quite an interesting dynamic that's starting to come when you think about money movement um, in, in general. Yeah, no, it is. It's, uh, as we say, that that sort of extra value that can be added in that way is is really interesting. And it, and to that point, I mean, the, the recipients that we're sort of seeing from a, a a global perspective you know the ha, have we seen a, a change obviously you know covid and everything that that's kind of happened in that period but you know we're seeing sort of global pressures from an economic perspective are we seeing the the types of recipients or or even the fact that cross-border payments is as critical uh, because of those changes because of the limitations around it just reading in the notes we've got india mexico china the philippines and egypt as the the top five recipient countries uh, with regards to remittances in 2021, and and that sort of makes sense, doesn't it, from a, a a model perspective? But has that shifted in recent times, Sarah? So, I would say remittance, especially um, to those countries, has been a large number, and it will continue to be. And I would say, despite economic headwinds, the transformation in the payments landscape hasn't stopped. If anything, we've started to see the rise of the gig economy and. Employees. And I don't actually see the remittance space slowing down at all. If anything, I could see it increase as with the cost of living crisis, workers could potentially be getting gig jobs to supplement their income and their salaries are essentially what they're remitting home. And I just don't, I don't see that, that slowing down at all. Yeah. If anything, I, I think is, you know, either you know, political or uh, economic unrest happens in different geographies, then the fundamental sort of uh, requirement for those things can can really increase quite dramatically, can't it? It's uh, uh, amazing to amazing to see. I, I mean, I guess in that sense, have we seen much progress? I mean, the, obviously the the advancement of the smartphone in recent years has been a a big uh, change in terms of what that can bring for. Uh, payments more broadly, but I guess where we're seeing, you know, developments in uh, mobile data, data connectivity and and everything that goes with that in terms of really bringing people together. Uh, let alone, I, I guess, will the the regulatory changes that we're seeing in in various different geos. I mean, it feels like this is a really shifting market. Yeah, David, I think it is. I mean, I actually think about this even more fundamentally, right? So. If I think about that, there was a, actually starting back even further, there was a great uh, article that was put out by Global Payments in February of this year. And they specifically spoke about their opening line was something like, 
payments have gotten faster and more transparent without the use of blockchain, which I thought was kind of an interesting like starting point for an article that that is kind of, you know, typically uh, trying to, to, to sort of drum up hype in the, in the start of the year. Just slip in a little blockchain disk there in the headline. I mean, I mean it's ballsy, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but, but what it talks to is if you think back to like 2008, 2009 in the payment space coming out of the crisis, right? Most treasurers and, and payments groups were really focused on a couple of different things. They were thinking about things like rationalization. They were thinking about things like introducing file formats like XML. And they were thinking about sort of risk management, controls, integration, all that type of generalized activity. Now, while that doesn't seem all that interesting today because it's kind of very table stakes, what it did do was set the foundation for a very important thing, which was collection of financial data. And I think what that did was drive a lot of what you've seen in the last four to five years around payments, which is they tend to have gotten more data heavy. So ISO has started to have a massive rise in terms of how payment flow has gone on. Um, the fact that fintechs have come along in the same era coming out of the back of this integration has driven innovation in payments quite significantly as well. We've seen them get faster. We've seen different methodologies of payment being, or different methods to make a payment being included in how transactions flow. We've seen alternative payments come into the fore. You, you kind of name it. There is a whole bunch of things that have, have really happened in, of late. So I think simply said, yes, there's been a huge amount of progress in the space, but I think you have to take it back to some of the fundamentals around how much um, good foundational work was done almost 10 years ago in the payments industry that's allowed a lot of this in, this innovation to take place. Yeah, I guess um, I guess with that work from a foundational perspective, uh, I mean, comes a, it's never the, uh, I think um, most people could um, save up long enough to afford a sports car. It ain't buying the sports car, it's running it. Those things are really expensive to run, right? The, the payments rails are no different to that, right? And I, I guess we're talking about not just a single set of rails, but we're talking about interconnected rails and regulations across all of these different jurisdictions. It is a it is a real tapestry, isn't it? The payments rails and and it it's an amazing one. I, I often sort of think you know people don't really understand all of the complexity that goes into that. We we all kind of use this on a day to day basis, and it's fundamental to to all of our lives in terms of either you know running a business or running your lives. But but actually that interconnected spider web that actually sits behind it is a I mean, a real thing of beauty, Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is an absolute interconnected web, and it's for us as payments practitioners to try to simplify it. But if we look at how this oper how payment systems operate across the world, there's so many different payment systems in each individual country. We mm. take the UK, where we have UK Faster Payments, we have BACs, we have CHAPs, all of them looking at a maintenance and an upgrade and innovate space. But where we have seen some great movement is in the new versions of real-time payments. So the UK was the foundation with UK Faster Payments, but with the rise of actually wanting to move physical cash, not physical notes, but moving cash versus cards, SEPA Instant came out, RT1, and you're seeing a brand new payment scheme, and it's built in better technology that's easier to maintain. To Will's point, it leverages ISO framework. And as we start seeing those limits increase in the introduction of target two instant payments tips, it becomes a cheaper operating model for running the payment systems. Yeah. I'd also say that with real-time payments means real-time liquidity. 
which could be higher operating costs from a capital perspective, because making sure you have the, the enough funding to make a transaction becomes quite complex. And if you're trying to do that in the breadth of 100 plus countries, it's not the easiest thing to do, nor be able to navigate which country has a real-time payment scheme versus which country is a two, three-day settlement cycle. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, um, I mean, that's a, a really great point. And it sort of brings us maybe to the, you know, we, there's a lot of work that's been done. There's a lot of progress that's been made, but there's still a hell of a lot of friction still in this market, isn't there? And I mean, I, I think as consumers, people sort of think, well, you know, I can send uh, I can send an email to my auntie Doris on the other side of the world. So, like, why doesn't the payment systems work in that sense? So, what are the the pain points that we're looking to overcome there? I mean, we we've talked a little bit about the you know interoperability from a payment standards perspective, or you know ubiquity of technology standards across the world for these things, or even the the regulators' level of comfort with them. Uh, I mean, Will, I don't know if you want to plug it. I mean, what is the real problems that you're facing into to try and solve? Yeah, I, I think the, there's the, the classical trifecta, and I'll come back actually to something Sarah said as well. So cost, speed, and transparency are probably the big three, right? Like every time someone's making a payment, they're worried about what it costs, how fast it'll be delivered, and can I actually track and trace it to, to the end payment? If you kind of flip that a little on its head and you look at most organizations, JP Morgan, City, we're all kind of somewhat the same in some of these conversations. We all have a payment strategy around payment ubiquity as well. Can I make payments into as many different payment types as possible? Can I hit as many locations as possible? Can I reach as many people as possible? And I think what's quite interesting is if you peel the onion just a little bit around payment ubiquity, a big component of that comes back to those first three fundamentals, which is cost, speed, and transparency. People are using different payment methods because they, they hit a certain set of criteria for them or they meet certain requirements they have from a cost standpoint and the likes. And I tend to think about most organizations that are potentially thinking about being able to make payments into these groups and trying to overcome these core three pieces of friction. And they think about that payment ubiquity piece and they think about the alternative payment methods that are there. We're really talking about access. Uh, and I think actually that's why I talk about payment ubiquity separately from the first three, because the friction or the pain point that tends to come in when you're an organization trying to access a new market or get to a new market is you need to really think about what the local requirements are. I mean, that, that can be a pretty sizable pain point for any organization. If you take a market like Kenya as a prime example, there's more payment flow through the M-Pesa mobile payment platform than there is through the entire banking environment combined. Right? That is a terrifying stat. But it also means that if you're thinking about accessing that market and being able to make a payment to a beneficiary, you have to be thinking about M-Pesa as part of your payments, um, which is kind of interesting if you think about it from a cross-border standpoint, because you're talking about not only leveraging what is traditionally seen as quite a complex, complicated payment type, but you're adding in an additional sort of pain point or, or friction, which is really access to an APM like, like uh, M-Pesa in that specific market. I mean, it's fascinating at that point, isn't it? Because, you know, we talk about trust in, in various different guises, don't we? But I mean, trust is not just in the organization from origination, but it's, it's the trust that that organization has all the way through to, to fulfill those things as well, isn't it? So, I mean, and that almost every decision that we make in, a, in business is, is in some way a, a risk-based decision, isn't it, in terms of what you're doing? But, but providing, I guess, levels of, of payment certainty, you know, particularly where we're talking about, 
you know, areas that might have been, you know, blacklisted or or grey listed uh, around the world, you know, providing that service to customers is is a difficult challenge, isn't it, Sarah? Absolutely. So. I would say moving money is a challenge regardless of where you're moving it in the world. And then you add the complexity of the world around sanction screening and money laundering on top of that. So if we think about cross-border payments, we need to make sure that there is a data standard across them. The more information on a transaction, the easier it is for big financial institutions to move this money. And that's why the rise of ISO 20022 XML, it has enriched data, but it also structured. So what that means is machines can read it and you can put better artificial intelligence and machine learning into your sanction screening process so that it's not about completely stopping transactions everywhere. It's about having the right level of framework established within your compliance programs. Now, blacklists for U.S. corporations are really block lists um, by the most part, unless you have a specific license. But what we really saw, and we've, we've lived it over the last 12 months with the war on Ukraine, is that sanctions are more complicated than they've ever been before. And that it's really important that you have the right risk framework and you have the right data in the transaction. Because if you don't have the right data in the transaction, it could be St. Petersburg, Florida, or it could be St. Petersburg, Russia. Those are two (laughs) different places. And in a cross-border FIN message, there's no structure forcing you to put that information in the transaction. And that's why with SWIFT's work on on cross-border Payments using ISO, I think, really starts helping manage these sort of complexities. Yeah, yeah, very different uh, risk uh, risk buckets uh, as it goes right now, isn't it? But uh, it's, um, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? That um, that standardization, that bringing about, you know, the common infrastructure, common language. Whether you know whether we're talking about standardizing APIs for open banking, or whether we're talking about standardizing endpoints for you know cross border payments, then then getting uh, the different parties to come together to actually have those conversations is critical, but but that's not easy, is it? You know, I, I'm I'm sort of uh, I speak with uh, having sit on the, the UK Payments Council back in the day when I was at a bank and blah 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 blah. I mean, everybody's got different interests. Regulators have a certain approach that they want. Some are looking for innovation and competition. Some are looking for stability, and uh, so there's there's no real consistency there. But how much of that, I guess, is from an industry's perspective? I mean, this really is for the greater good, isn't it? Bringing about these types of changes. And I would sort of say not just from a payments perspective, because the the sort of one step from payments is is everything that we see from identity and uh, all of the the measures and uh, practices that we see from an anti-money laundering perspective. So, I mean, how, how much do you see, I guess, the, the opportunities to solve these problems? I mean, they're they're huge, aren't they? Not just from an organization, from either organization's perspective, but but from a societal perspective, these are these are real big problems to kind of face into, aren't they? Well, yeah. So uh, it's quite interesting that you raised um, identity as as one of the topics that you spoke about when speaking about standards, because you know that for a long time you know, there's been some great books out there. There's a book that I'm reminded of that says if we saw that basically said identity is the new money. And it's quite an interesting book because it talks a little bit about how identity can be traded as a way to to kind of move money around an ecosystem without even actually moving money. You know, people doing things like gift card transfers and you, you sort of name it. But 
this idea of standards is such a critical component for removing friction that I think it's it's frequently underestimated as an area that we should be focusing time on because it's not sexy, right? It's regulators sitting around a table and agreeing that height should be measured in feet, not centimeters, <laughs> or you know, eye color is an important component of how we think about something, or an ID number should potentially be universal. You know, the, the problem is, in my mind, we're not even solving for fundamental attributes like that in identity and creating standards that allow us to, to really execute one global digital identity standard. And yet we continue to push the, the narrative around digital identity being this really important component of what we do. And I think we see standards, um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about ISO, which is really speaking just one component of a cross-border payment. It's just the message, right? It's just the structure of the message. You know, it completely ignores other components when you think about like regulatory standards in a market, right? One of the biggest causes of friction in a cross-border payment today um, is things like how or what you have to comply with before you make a payment. And that's not even just AML or, or sanctions related um, compliance fact, uh, matters. This is things like documentation checking, right? And, you know, I think about these these markets in different sort of buckets. You have markets that have no regulation. Those are pretty straightforward. Moving money actually there is a relatively lower friction uh, experience. Then you get markets where, hey, when I move money to a different person, I transfer the value to somebody else. I need to have documents checked. Uh, and then when I have money or I have money converted, there's markets that apply the regulation at that point. So forget even the documentation checking itself, like what documents are required for a payment. Frequently, the way the actual regulation itself is applied is very different. So yeah, I 100% stand behind that. Standards are a big way to reduce friction in um, in cross-border payments, and it's probably something we're not spending enough time on um, as, a, as a joint industry. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, nice shout out for Dave Birch's Identity is a New Money uh, book there as well. Available at all good <laughs> publishers, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, if uh, I'm pretty sure Dave will uh, will enjoy having a plug on the show. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to check out his book, I'm pretty sure it's available on Amazon still. So, uh, okay, folks, we're just going to take a quick pause here. Back with you very shortly. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Nights, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Maybe if we move forward, though, having had a, a bit of a look at today and, and obviously the, the friction still in that process, as we, we talked about, maybe if we move forward and have a look at where we want the industry to to get towards. I mean, obviously, aiming, as we say, about you know reducing cost, about reducing friction or or the right type of uh, having the right type of friction in the in the system. I mean, how do we? How do we really make that happen? How do we make the systems faster? How do we, you know, connect these dots a little bit better? How do we make the systems more transparent? Because as we say, I mean, this is a there's no shortage of money moving around the the systems uh, as it stands right now. You know, both your organizations facilitating a lot of that in 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 the the world. But I mean, how do we tap into that holy grail, Sarah? What's the what's the big push here? Is it about uh, is it about the 
Is it purely about the payment or is it about all of the failed payments? Is it about the money that gets to where it needs to do? Or is it the, you know, the money laundering? Because actually solving those problems, I, again, I come back to our deep-seated societal issues, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the positive steps forward is what the FSB is doing around the G20 work. And they look at it in the three different buckets, which goes to what we've been talking about, payment system interoperability, which ultimately lets payment systems talk to each other. And today we know they speak in different languages. The legal regulatory framework around it to the point Will was speaking about, and then data exchange and message standards. And that kind of falls into your point around APIs and really thinking about when a transaction doesn't go down the happy path, how do we really look at investigations, et cetera? Because by and large, big organizations like a Citibank and a JP Morgan, we're moving money at scale at 99 plus percent STP, but it's those transactions that stop that essentially give all of us in the whole entire ecosystem the headache. And that's why I think working together in both private and public collaboration is key. This just can't be a regulatory dictation on certain countries. This really needs to have all participants in the payment chain really thinking about how they're going to drive better value for underlying customers. But this can only be done if we have standardization and harmonization, to your point. And I, I look at open banking, there's so much promise for open banking, but if there's no standards in API formatting outside of the UK, it doesn't really gain the adoption because you ultimately need some sort of framework in order to, to mo move forward. And then I would say all of this is underpinned by, there's going to be continuously challenges and we all have to work together on an ongoing basis. This isn't a one and done. We've supported the G20 FSB report. This is how do we continuously innovate? And David, maybe if I could add one point to just what Sarah was saying, I think a lot of this actually comes down to the fact that value-added services are probably underappreciated in, in payments as well. You know, we don't we don't think about this enough, but but I agree wholeheartedly with what what Sarah's saying. And and one prime example of where we we don't sort of collaborate well as an industry is things like payment validation, which could be a huge re a friction reducer and payment failure reducer uh, in transactions. Right to, to Sarah's point, we're all sitting with extremely high STP rates, but it's that what do you do when that 0.5 percent of payments fail, and what should we actually be doing up front before those payments fail? Payments fail for a number of different reasons, and ironically, it still tends to be the same old items. It's, I have the wrong bank account number, or I don't have a tax ID, or I haven't formatted some components of the payment in the right way, or the Benny Banks BIC has changed. So a lot of those types of things are actually value-added services in my mind. I don't think about them as core to the payment, but it's amazing how fundamental they are in ensuring that that, that the payment itself is executed uh, without friction end-to-end. -end. I mean, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you kind of think about the, the history of from a payments perspective, I mean, it wasn't long ago money was being moved in carts with horses dragging it around, you know, I mean, it's like, and it really wasn't that long ago if we, uh, if we sort of look back. So, so actually we've come a, an amazingly long way. I mean, how much do you think the, 
you know the, the the concerns or the difficulties that we get into sometimes with the the standards and everything that goes there. I mean, any uh, if you kind of look at motorsports, they uh, they went quick before they realised they had to uh, get good brakes, right? So there's a there's a kind of an interesting sort of point here around all of the controls, the frameworks that that interoperability of it. The cars can only go as fast as the track allows them in in certain instances on those things. But but digital is fundamentally it's a it's a real time you know 24 hours a day, 365 days a year thing, and actually. That's a that's a difficult you know the 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 old um, adage of um, changing the wheel while you're driving 100 miles an hour down the the road you know when it comes to standards and regulatory change there's no turning it off and fixing it and turning it back on again is there you know there's uh, no uh, countries would uh, would fail if that happened uh, to to any large scale so I mean how much of this is a almost a a symptom of the digital world that we live in and and how important this is to your point well this you know nobody talks that much about oxygen until the uh, the air quality is bad uh, but when it's great it's great uh, but actually that value added capability that we need to bring around payments the the context the the benefit from it it's not just doing the thing it's it's all of the benefit that comes around it um you know do you think this is sort of almost table stakes just for the digital world that we live in i think it's how we're operating right now right if you look at 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 instant payments. And we're probably going to learn a little bit about this as payments cross-border move quicker and quicker in the way that they've gone about. But like, let's take instant payments as a prime example. When you think about instant payments, it was it was implemented, you know, actually at this stage, it's still being implemented with pretty high standards. Like most markets are now ISO native. They've got a bunch of value-added services like, um, you know, proxy-based payments in the scheme. There's a whole bunch of those type of feature sets that sort of exist and are available sort of out of the box, if you will. What's kind of interesting is if you take that back to a corporate application and you look at the fact that we've put out this brand new payment type, there's new capabilities, you can execute a payment instantly. What we've frequently seen is an oopsie or an aha moment post usage of the actual instrument. And we see, for example, things like real concerns around fraud and worries around the actual payment now being instant. All of a sudden, corporates are having to think about the fact that their treasury practices aren't instant. Their treasury practices are still batch-based. They're still thinking about queuing up transactions, having a make-a-checker process, release of processes, time zones or timelines for when they release transactions. And so what we've what we've tended to see is exactly that, David. I think we've kind of learned as some of these instruments are out there. I do agree that it has to be far more controlled in the payment space because the cost of getting it wrong is extremely, extremely high. Um, But yeah, I think this is how we're seeing it today. We're actually seeing this being quite iterative. So prime example of this is what I've mentioned around instant payments being um, treasuries having to figure out how to think about fraud in a new way. What you've started to see is the emergence of things like rule-based payments. So organizations are implementing certain triggers that say, hey, I'm going to let the consumer decide when I pay them. Uh, And as long as the payment meets a certain rule set, it's, you know, I've got money in the account, the Benny's actually due the money, um, and it's the right time of day in the right currency, the transaction will execute without any fingers in the pie. Now, that did not come on day one of instant payments. That came on, you know, year 10 of instant payments. But it was that iterative process of actually learning as, as the solution was rolled out that I think was how we landed where we are. And I think we're going to continue to see that in a number of different digitization methods that are being applied as we speak. Yeah, I mean, it feels, I mean, Sarah, just putting this one to you, I mean, it feels very much like the our CTO at 11FS always says no good system is is delivered, it's grown. Uh, it kind of feels like the, the 
the payments ecosystem is probably a really good indication of that because you know the evolutionary steps that continue to be taken are what keep it really safe and relevant to to the problems that are being faced into at any given time. What do you think? Absolutely, because I would say that as payments providers, our number one priority is to protect our underlying users, whether that's a consumer or a large corporate or financial institution. So whether it's the cybersecurity budgets that we all have or just making sure that we have the right framework in place to help our clients stop fraudulent transactions. And we've seen that rise from someone just taking your credit card number to spoofing a corporate treasurer to send an invoice that is sent to the wrong place. And this kind of goes back to your point earlier, David. We're still sending money around the world based on account number only. There is no way to globally say that David's account is X. And that's where we need to do, to Will's point, some more pre uh, front validation on on bank accounts. There are big financial institutions across many, many countries. We have all this data. We just don't have a way to share it. And I think the UK has done a great job of confirmation of AE. And now that that's being mandated, you should see a reduction in APP fraud, which will then give consumers a better a safer use of UK faster payments, which could then in turn to more open banking transactions, et cetera. And that's the exciting part of payments is that there's so much more we can build on. It's just making sure that we get the security of moving money at, for, at the forefront of everything we do. We, we can't take any risks there. I mean, it seems like a, a stupid question to ask this. And, and like, I know I feel like at a barbecue, the three of us would just be talking about payments for the entirety of the time on it. I can already feel my wife's eyes rolling at me over the table <laughs> in, on that one. But, uh, but I mean, the market's come a long way. There's loads and loads of money moving around the world. There's lots of great services out there. Uh, like, why make this better? Is it is it that there is still a very long journey to go in order to where we want to get to, or or is there? Is it push or is it pull in terms of the the demand from a, a consumer perspective as well? Because obviously the the changing landscape that we're operating in, the world looks very different than it did, you know, even three years ago, right? In terms of all the things that we've we've all been through. So, I mean, Sarah, it seems it seems a stupid question to ask it, but why why make this better? No, I absolutely think you do need to make it better because there's still a lot of fraud in the ecosystem. There's an enormous amount of scam artists out there. And as the banks get smarter, the so do the fraudsters. And especially today in a digital world, it's much easier to play on the vulnerable population. So making sure that you're continuously protecting your underlying sender of the money but also demands from everybody around the whole ecosystem is completely changed. You can have, essentially you can order your Uber, you can order your dinner, everything is on demand and you can track that transaction completely from the kitchen accepting the order to it showing at your front door, but you can send a billion dollars to China and you're relying on every bank adhering to Swift GPI and updating you amongst that course. And that's you pulling information rather than someone pushing you that information. So there's more that we can do. And I think that technology is the catalyst and it's cheaper and easier to use in the payment space. And I do think there's still a lot of legacy payments platforms around the world. And if you look at some of the 
drives to why the central banks are upgrading ISO is because they need to modernize their cobalt mainframes and move on to cloud-based technology. And I would say cloud-based technology hasn't been really in the forefront inside payments because of protection of data. I can say at JP Morgan, we're now getting into public cloud, but it took us a journey to get there because we need to make sure that at the heart of everything we're doing is protecting our customers' data. And that protects them from the, the fraudsters out there. And it's our duty of care with their information. Yeah. And there's, as you say, there's there's nobody quite as innovative as fraudsters. They're uh, they're pre- pretty well incentivized to ca- keep ahead of that curve, aren't they? But uh, Will, maybe sort of rounding us out then, because I mean, again, I think uh, that that sort of hypothetical barbecue that we all need to get together and talk about this for, for several hours, uh, I think uh, we'll let everybody listen in at a, a later date. But uh, we're coming to the uh, the end of the show, so we better wrap up. But maybe bringing it way back to the top of, of the question, what do you think for anybody listening to this, what would be the the one change that you think would impact cross-border payments for the better? That's a great question. Um, I, I so I think if I if I had to like really think about what would be one of the most fundamental changes that we could do in order to improve cross-border payments, I, I would say a lot of it has to come down to how banks are sharing data and information. I know that that Sarah had sort of mentioned this already, but. I think the reality is a lot of what we do as a, as a group today, and, and part of this, I think, is down to how strict some of the regulation is around data protection and how, as we've mentioned earlier on the call today, how big the cost is if we get this wrong. Um, I think the, the way I think about this is if we share and work together better as an industry, I think that would massively improve how cross-border payments work. And this is across the spectrum, across the gamut of everything, whether that's sharing validation-based endpoints through APIs, or that's sharing how we think about the the way payments um, should flow and how payments should actually fundamentally move. I think that would make a a pretty fundamental, uh, or create a pretty fundamental shift. And it could be across all spectrums, you know, digital identity, you name it. There are a number of different use cases where just improvements in how we share would be a pretty significant uh, step forward for for us as a group. Um, and I'll, I'll use a, a great use case as a way to shape this, right? So City today, our cross-border business, we have one of the largest uh, ACH networks in the world, right? So we can access a whole bunch of cross-border ACH networks through our payment platforms. Um, and the problem is we have a great solution here because you have the ability to make a cross-border payment feel like it's domestic. But to Sarah's point earlier, so many of these ACH schemes are old. So the problem is, is you're pushing a ISO native message, which is now great. It's data rich. It's got a whole bunch of information into it, into some. And, and just to give you an idea of what I mean by this is ISO 20022 is pretty consistently used in some of these schemes. And we're pushing it into like an 85 ISO 8583 message type in ACH. And I just think about the fact that a client then says to me, to, to Sarah's point on the like tracking of the payment, hey, what happens once that payment gets out to the scheme? And our answer is, well, we don't really know because the schemes don't have the endpoints for us to be able to access that. Um, and yet, if the beneficiary bank was able to share that the payment has been applied to the bank account, what a great experience you could create for our customers and for our, our, our sort of users in the ecosystem. So I think in my mind, now it, it 
my mind, it might sound like a very fundamental point, but I think it's one area where I think we as an industry have uh, have a lot of opportunity if we can get it right. Yeah, Bax has less characters in it than a Twitter message. So there's only upside. Absolutely. And and I think, uh, as you say, that sort of collaboration, the uh, the sort of power in that network becomes stronger as as people work more together. But Sarah, maybe giving you the last word then, what would be the, the, the one change that you think would, would really impact cross-border payments? So I think it's building on what we've already put in place and continuing to think about how we augment with new innovation. And I'm not going to give a payments example. I'm going to give Taylor Swift because she's blowing up and breaking the internet. If you think about her, she took the evolution of what people would use a lighter at a concert for and upgraded that to a LED wristband as a new communication method across her concerts. And I see us as payments practitioners taking that later and seeing how we can use the function and really bring that to the next stage of innovation because there's there's only upside. Fantastic. I love a good Taylor Swift reference in there as well. So, uh, And on that note, we better wrap up today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and the companies that you represent? Uh, Sarah? I'm at JPMorgan backslash payments, and I recommend going to check out our Transformers, the movie video on how we're transforming payments, or you can find me at Sarah Castellano at LinkedIn. Loving all of these pop culture references. Will, where can people learn a little bit more? Yeah, so uh, for City, uh, citygroup.com, navigating to services, there's a huge amount of information on our treasury and trade solutions business, uh, which is part of where the cross-border payments world fits in, uh, and then William.Ottingstall uh, at LinkedIn as well. So sort of very active there. Very, very cool. Uh, you can always find me lurking on LinkedIn somewhere. But uh, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. Super helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email us on podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.